0: I invite you to turn with me to the letter to the Galatians chapter 4 Galatians chapter 4 Galatians 4, we will read the verses 1 through 20, our text will be the verses 8 through 20, and I um, will especially be focusing on the idea of Christ being formed in you, which comes out in verse 19. So we'll read the verses 1 through 20, but our focus is verses 8 through 20. born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir, through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless, elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever felt out of your depth when you listened to other people discussing matters of faith? Maybe they had a deep and involved discussion about some theological point and you didn't quite grasp it. Maybe you felt like you weren't quite smart enough to be part of that conversation So you sat and you listened and maybe you felt a little bit like an imposter. It's quite possible that at heart many of us feel this way. We feel like we're not quite good enough, not quite smart enough to be a part of these things. But maybe that's because we've misunderstood what true theology is about. True theology is intellectual, of course. But at its heart, true theology is about relationships. Theology, after all, is talk about God. That's what the word means. And no one is more focused on relationships than God. God enables a relationship with us, and he pursues it. Faith is when we respond to that. And faith is never something that we just do on our own. Faith always happens in community. So part of the consequences of being a Christian is that God puts you together in a community of faith. He puts you in relationships with others. And that community, of course, is called the church. Now, when you're in relationship with others, you're also going to be vulnerable. As soon as you are in a relationship, you have the potential for being hurt. That's one of the consequences of relationships. And that was what happened to the Apostle Paul as well. So far, most of his letter has been intellectual. It's been very theological. That's why we've been going through it sometimes only a a couple of verses at a time. But it has also been hot with emotion in places. And here these two, the, the intellectual and the emotional, come together in this passage that we read. Paul had founded a number of churches in Galatia. For a while, uh, things had been, been going well there. But now the Galatians are turning their backs on everything that Paul has taught them about God. Before then, they, they were united with God. And with Paul, in true faith, they had these rich relationships, and now all of this is being damaged. They have become hostile to Paul. It's almost as if they don't recognize him anymore. And Paul interacts with that in this passage. At the end of our text, all of his frustration and all of his love for them boil over, and he refers to them as my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And saying that, he implies that the problem is that Christ is not yet fully formed in them and that this is a, a goal towards which they should be working. When it does happen, they will be united in faith with God, with himself, and with each other. And the same is true for us today. We can only be united in true faith when Christ is formed in each of us. And we'll pay attention to two points, that this is not the work of man This is the work of God. Now, in these last number of months, we've been studying this letter of Paul to the Galatians. It was quite possibly the very first letter that he wrote. Um, Very possibly the very first epistle in the New Testament. And it's been written fast. Paul was under a lot of pressure when he wrote this letter. He couldn't go to Galatia himself. There was a crisis there that needed to be dealt with. He couldn't go back to deal with it right away, so he sent this letter instead. And for us, 2,000 years later, reading this letter, we don't always grasp the extent of the problem that he had. Although by now, having spent a lot of time on this, we we have a better view of this. And we know, for example, that there was a, a group of Jewish Christians called Judaizers. That they were telling the Galatian Christians, who did not come from a Jewish background... That they had to follow the ceremonial laws, the Jewish ceremonial laws, if they wanted to be complete Christians. And in some ways, it kind of makes a little bit of sense, doesn't it? You can see how this thinking would have come about. The Galatians came from a profoundly immoral, heathen background. You can imagine that, that these Judaizers would have thought, you know, what they really need, these these people that are fresh out of heathendom, what they really need is morals. That's what they need. They need to become Jewish. They need to submit to the law of God as it was taught to Moses. That's what they need. Judaism was, of course, a profoundly moral faith system traced back to Abraham already. And and so it had a pedigree. It had a long history. And these Judaizers were a part of that. They were, they were smart. They were theological. They were intimidating. They were hard at work undermining what Paul was teaching to these people. Yet in verse 8, Paul reminds his readers of what life was like before they knew God. And he says, You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Heathen religion was oriented to natural forces and to seasons. And even today, these forces are quite mysterious, aren't they? What causes thunder, for instance? You've all read the description, but what causes thunder? Why do things grow? We know that things grow, but why do they? How does that happen? How is life formed in the womb? You can describe it, but do you completely understand it? Why does a body heal from some diseases, but not from others? Life is full of mysteries. And in our more scientific age, we, we might understand more of how it works. We might be able to describe a lot of it. But in the end, there's still a lot of mystery in life, isn't there? Now, before converting, the Galatians had worshipped some of these natural forces and the gods that they thought represented them. And Paul says you were enslaved to those who by nature are not gods. By nature they are not gods. All of these these things have no power of their own. They are only gods to the degree that people believe in them, but there is nothing inherently divine in them. Now, there may be demonic forces at work sometimes behind these things, but in and of themselves themselves. These basic natural principles are not God's. Now, it's interesting in verse 9, he says that the Galatians are turning back to these, they're turning back to these weak and worthless elementary principles. Now, this phrase, uh, elementary principles, we looked at it last week, it came up in verse 3 as well. The heathens had, uh, the heathen religion um, had a certain kind of elementary morality to it. It was called you, you could call it the ABCs of morality. All false religions are, are moral in their own way. That's what makes them attractive, right? They have a, a way of guiding and directing life. They have a code of conduct. They have a way of setting setting you apart. They have a way of processing the events that happen. But what's really interesting here is that Paul is suggesting if these Galatians go back to Judaism, it's actually no different from turning back to their former heathen ways. Now, we should should not underestimate the shock value that this has. He's basically saying, look, whether you follow heathen beliefs or Jewish beliefs taught by these Judaizers in Galatia, it all comes down to the same thing. It is not true faith It is trying to impose a man-centered belief system on people. Now, you might wonder, well, hold on. I thought that the Old Testament law was good. It came from God, did it not? Yes, and it is good, and it should be respected as such. And even today, it provides us with much guidance. Belgic Confession, Article 25 But the point that Paul is making is that we have Christ now. He fulfilled all of that law. Through faith we are joined to Him. And we are freed. We are freed. The punishment for our sin is borne by Christ. The guilt of our sin is cancelled in Christ. The power of our sin is broken through Christ. We are empowered to live a life that is pleasing to Christ out of thankfulness. No man-centered religion can make you do that. So you cannot go back to law-keeping. You cannot go back to mere morality as if Christ is an afterthought. You cannot use these things to add to the righteousness that is yours already at this very moment in Christ. The law without Christ is no righteousness at all. Just as much as the heathen rituals cannot save you from the judgment of God. This is going back into bondage back into slavery. In verse 10, Paul equates this bondage with days and months and seasons and years on one level that could be understood to refer to the Jewish ceremonial calendar. Days then would refer to the Jewish uh, Sabbath and to other feasts. Rituals would be, um, or months would be the rituals that took place at the beginning of every month. Refer to in Numbers 10, verse 10, for example. And seasons would be the three annual feasts, the Passover, the Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths. And the years would refer then to the year of Jubilee, to everything surrounding it, possibly also to New Year's celebrations. But Paul is being deliberately vague. Did you notice this? He's uh, being deliberately vague. You observe days and months and seasons and years, but he doesn't say from whose belief system, whether that be the Jewish or whether it be the heathen. See, the heathens also had their own festivals, their own special days, their own months, seasons, and years. And Paul is implying, if you go back to Judaism, you know, it makes no difference which festivals you hold or why you do it. It all comes down to the same thing. You're trapped. You're trapped because this work of man can never bring you to true faith. It will not form Christ in you. In fact, Forming Christ in you is not even a priority. It comes back to the question, of why, why are people religious to begin with? And Paul says to them in verse 9, look, you knew all of this stuff. You came to faith. You have come to know God. Why are you going back to these things? In fact, he says, it's not even that you came to know God. It's that you were known by God. Think of the words of Jesus in John 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So if you are sitting here today and you have faith, it's because God acted first. That's at the heart of all true faith, that God acted first, that God drew you in, and he's saying to the Galatians, this happened to you, why are you going back? He says, look, you already belong to God. True faith Is a gift of God. If you have true faith, you already belong to him. You're already one of God's people. You're not living like it. And you should. So there's a call to repentance actually wrapped up in these verses. You are known by God. How can you turn back again to these weak and worthless elementary principles? You need to stop looking at yourself, your own efforts. Start thinking about why have you got faith in the first place? And if they continue to backslide, it will be because they never had true faith to begin with. Paul alludes to that in verse 11 I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Now, don't misunderstand. He's not suggesting that true believers can lose their faith, but it is possible that they seem to have faith and did not have it yet. It's a frightening possibility. That's why Paul says he's afraid. He says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. This is the man who faced rulers, councils. The man who was shipwrecked, bitten by a poisonous snake, had all sorts of things that would frighten us. And he never said he was afraid of those things, but he says here, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. If this is the case, what should they do? In that case, the only thing they can do is to repent and turn to Christ in genuine faith. Only then will they have true assurance. You don't get assurance from your own life or efforts. You can only ever receive assurance through Christ. And only God's Word can tell you about that. That's why you need to read God's Word every day. You need the Gospel. It gives us perspective. It reorients us. It shapes how we think. We need to absorb the Gospel in our regular Bible reading and a regular church going. That's how you hear the gospel. Don't be one of those families where the gospel is only opened on Sundays in church. Now, these people were first-generation believers, so they didn't have the gospel until Paul brought it to them. He embodied it in a certain sense. You know, he's very fanatic here. Paul is against these um, Jewish opponents. But just like the Galatians... Or he's, he's very fanatic against the Jewish opponents, but he was one of them at one point in time. He was even more Jewish than they were. He was a, a Pharisee. And just like the Galatians, he came to faith when he was called by God. And the reason why God called him was because God had set him apart for this before he was born. And Paul realizes that about himself, and he wants these people to become like him in the sense that he wants them to, to know who Jesus is. He wants them to know what Jesus has done for him. He wants them to share in the freedom that, that, that he has in Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, can we say the same thing about ourselves? There's a world full of unbelievers out there. Do you desire them to share in the faith that you have? Is that in your heart of hearts something that you long for? Would you love for more people to share in the hope and the faith that you have? And is there anything in us right now that is preventing others from being wanting to be like us? Obviously, you can't compromise your, your, your faith or your behavior. But are you, doing a, are you doing your best for people to relate to you? You as an individual... Are you making it easy for people to relate to you? Has the gospel so transformed your life that people look at you and that they think, I don't know what it is, but I'm drawn to that. How does the gospel shape the way that you speak to others, for example? In the service industries, maybe? Or the way that you speak about others in the presence of unbelievers? Do you speak with gentleness? Do you speak with respect to all people? Respect is a big thing, you know. There's not much out there anymore. Or are you just like the rest of the world in that you turn people off by the way that you relate to them? Or you relate to them purely on a secular level and and faith never comes into the picture. How is it for you? Paul did everything he could to make people want to become like him. He eliminated anything that got in the way. And there have been others who did that as well. One famous example is Hudson Taylor, 19th century missionary to China. Um, He was the first to dress like the Chinese, to cut his hair like the Chinese, and to wear it in a pigtail, actually, which involved shaving the top of the, the front of the forehead. So basically right up until halfway up the head would be shaved, and the back would be grown out and woven into a pigtail. Once he did that and started to dress like the Chinese, they were more willing to listen to him. He realized that the cultural differences between himself as a Westerner and the Chinese people were getting in the way of the gospel. And he wanted them to share in the gospel that he embodied. He tried to become like, him, like them as much as possible. There's something inherently Christian about that isn't there, to as much as possible take on the form of the people around you? Isn't that what Jesus did to us? He became one of us. Are we not meant to reflect that in our own lives? And it made a difference. When Paul first came, he was, he was there under difficult circumstances. Verse 13, he reminds them of that. It was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. There's been a, a lot of discussion as to what this bodily ailment was. Some people look at verse 15. I testify to you that if possible you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. And they say, well, the answer was easy. Paul had uh, eye problems. Ophthalmia, as they call it. But that doesn't necessarily follow logically at all. Imagine if he would have said, you would have given your right arm for me. Which is an expression we're familiar with. We don't thereby assume that Paul was missing his right arm. Right? It's just an expression. So it's possible Paul was using an expression here and it had nothing to do with his eyes. Although we can't exclude that either. One theory that actually might, might be correct is that he had malaria. Um, he would have picked it up then in the coastal regions of Pamphylia. And malaria comes with recurring fevers if it's not treated properly. It can affect you drastically in many ways, especially if it gets into your brain. And um, it can be a long-term health problem. So Paul was not in good shape when he got there, and he preached the gospel anyway, and they accepted it. And think about this now in terms of the gospel itself. The, the fact that they accepted him anyway demonstrates something of the power of the gospel that he preached And here's why. Because Greco-Roman culture was a culture of speakers, of orators. If you wanted to be a successful public speaker, you had a number of requirements. One of them was that you would be good-looking. The second is that you would be well-educated. And the third is that you would be eloquent. Well, Paul was well-educated, but he was none of the other things. As the Corinthians said, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. His speech is of no account. So the Galatians could have rejected him. They should have rejected him according to their cultural rules and they didn't. Why not? Because of God. It was God's work. God working through him because of the power of the gospel because, and this is the whole point and has been the point all along, that it is not the work of man. The true gospel is the work of God. It is in that sense something that we might be insecure. We might not not feel like we have it together. But if the gospel is in us, and if we live out of the gospel, that has a power to it that is above and beyond our own limitations. And there's hope in that too, is there not? Do we not spend so much of our time thinking horizontally, thinking about things in terms of this life? But the gospel has a power of its own. It's the work of God It transformed this relationship between Paul and these heathens And their relationship with him and attitude to him was described as blessedness. What happened to your blessedness, he says, verse 15. What has become of your blessedness? This was a fruit of the gospel. The gospel has a power of its own. Think about how privileged you are to have the gospel. And a lot of people don't recognize the power that it has. And over the years, many have tried to alter the gospel, to water it down, to change it. But then it is no longer the gospel. The true gospel has a power of its own. It can bring people to faith. It's God's tool to bring people to faith. It's done that for thousands of years. It did that to the Galatians as well. But that's why their behavior now is so strange, so puzzling. In verse 16, they've rejected. He he alludes to the fact that they've rejected him simply for speaking the truth. The gospel hasn't changed, so what's happened here? This false doctrine has created a real rift between them and Paul. The previous blessedness was a work of God in their life, and their current attitude is a work of man, the Judaizers. That's the thing about the true gospel. It always unites people. It never divides them. So, if you have division in your church, or in your church community, it's always because people have begun to focus on things that are not the gospel. The true gospel unites. We can only be united in true faith when Christ is formed in each of us. That's what the gospel does. It is not the work of man. It is the work of God. Now the problem with these Judaizers, and we're on our second point now, the problem with these Judaizers is that they're trying to shape the Galatians into their own form. It's really interesting. If you, if you consider the, um, the image of form the, 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 the idea of form as, a, as it shows up in this passage. There's different forms. There's, there's Paul appearing in his form of sickness. There's these Judaizers trying to mold the Galatians into their own form. And then we have the form of Christ, which is meant to, to grow in each of them. And so there are these conflicting forms that are, that are um, interplaying in this passage. It's actually quite, quite interesting when you study the passage from that perspective. And that's why we took a big chunk today and not a small one. And so these these Judaizers are trying to shape the Galatians into their own form. They're trying to recruit them to their own cause. And in verse 17, Paul says, They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. In other words, they are flattering you. They're dominating you, but they're not doing it sincerely. They are trying to shut you out. They want to exclude you. How? Well, they're saying to you, you don't belong to God's people until you are circumcised, until you follow the Mosaic law. And think about these people. They'd, they'd come from a background with no hope, um, a heathen background where you're always subject to the whims of the gods, where you live in fear. Then they come to faith, they've been baptized, they've received God's promises, they've responded in faith, they've had a thriving church community, and now these people come along and tell them this is not enough. In verse 18, he says, it is always good to, to be made much of for a good purpose, not only when I am present with you. What does he mean? Well, the way that these Judaizers are carrying on is that, that they're basically courting them. It's kind of like a first date, you know, a theological first date. These Judaizers, they've come in, they've, they've um, swept these Galatians off of their feet, Well, uh, Paul did that in a way as well, but he did it for a good purpose. He was motivated by pure motives. He spent a lot of time on them to bring them the true gospel. And now he's gone and someone else has come along and swept these people off of their feet for impure motives. So there's a sense of anger here, real anger, righteous anger. These Judaizers are sheep stealers. These Galatians were members in good standing They were, for the most part, genuine believers, and now they're being told that they don't belong at all. They're being driven away from their heritage, all the while being told that what they're going to get is something much better. That's spiritual gaslighting. That's what it is. They're being told one thing while what is happening is totally different. And Paul sees this, and he is so passionate at this point. Now, office bearers today are not the same as apostles back then, but there is overlap. They carry spiritual responsibility. And in that sense, um, as office bearers, we can learn from the Apostle Paul. These are the kinds of office bearers that we need, people that are possessive of their sheep, that jealously guard the flock, that are vigilant over the people in their care. And when you see something that threatens to draw your people away from the true gospel, you go to war. You go to war for them. You don't just see it happen. Any bad theology, any lies that live in the congregation need to be exposed. Doctrine matters. You have to know your doctrine. This is why we're so... Heavy on memorization as well in the catechism classes. And why the sermons that you hear are, are probably a bit heavy every now and then. Doctrine matters. It matters to memorize the confessions, it matters to memorize scripture, it matters to know your doctrine. We are not Paul, but surely his example can serve those of us who are office bearers. Paul refers to the Galatians affectionately as my little children, verse 19. My little children, isn't, it, isn't that great? All this passion and emotion, and then my little children. He uses this maternal imagery maternal imagery of being in the anguish of childbirth. And mothers among us know that you bring a child into the world and you do it with pain, and that's only the beginning. In the same sentence, though, he shifts imagery to the growth of Christ in them. He says, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ has formed in you. What does he mean when he refers to Christ being formed in them? Well, what does it mean to bear the image of God? You know this, of course, from Lord's Day 3, drawn from Scripture. To bear the image of God means to bear his characteristics. It is to live in true righteousness and holiness, Ephesians 4.24. Righteousness is to live in accordance with the law of God. Holiness is to be set apart for God. In other words, what you do and why you do it. So the Judaizers were trying to get the Galatians to put on the image of God on their own, essentially. They were trying to get them to live according to God's law and to be totally set apart for God and everything. And circumcision was the first part of that. But to, to truly have the image of God in us is not something we can do on our own. We can only be united in true faith when Christ is formed in each one of us. And to form Christ in a believer is not the work of man, it can never be the work of man. How can that be the work of man? It is always the work of God. So those of us who are parents should remember this as well. Sometimes parenting feels like a constant exercise in behavior modification, doesn't it? Stop doing that. Don't touch that. Put it away. Tie your shoes. Behavior modification. But if that's all that we do, we've failed as parents. Parents. Yes, we should discipline our children, but the ultimate goal is not mere behavior modification. The ultimate goal of parenting is to have Christ formed in our children. That's a spiritual thing. Nothing you do is going to make that happen. It has to be a work of God. And that is why all parenting starts with your personal walk of faith. You parent out of your union with Christ. All parenting exists to point children to Christ. You cannot point your children to someone that you do not know yourself. You see, Christ became as we are so that we could become as he is. He took on a human form, he suffered, he died in our place so that his perfect righteousness. And his perfect holiness would be imputed, would be credited to us. We had, the image, we had the image of God, but we lost it through the fall into sin. Now that Christ has come, he's restoring the image of God in us. And that is the work of God. So legally, he imputes his perfect righteousness and holiness to us. And then he calls us to grow more and more into his shape. To Christlessness, to Christ-likeness is the result of regeneration. Regeneration, the point where someone first comes to spiritual life or they first have genuine faith. It's called being born again in John chapter 3. And when there is true regeneration, then there is true sanctification as well. If you think of regeneration, if you compare it to a stone being dropped into a pool, you get a big splash, then you get ripples. Regeneration is like the splash. Sanctification is like the ripples. Sanctification is to more and more begin to reflect the image of Christ in your day-to-day behavior. It's something that grows from the inside out. It cannot be imposed from the outside in, like the Judaizers were trying. It is the work of God, not the work of man. So this process of sanctification is so thorough that Paul here refers to it as actually having Christ formed in us. Not in the sense that we become him, that that, that would be heresy. But in the sense that we are joined to him, that we receive his resurrection life, that his character grows in us. In John 15 verse 5, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So there is a real way in which what we do and why we do it changes when we come to know Christ. This language of having Christ formed in us is is in other places in Scripture as well. Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, or Romans 13, verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Or Ephesians 4, verse 24, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Many other examples could be quoted. But you know, all of this is quite different from how we envision these things. We tend to define ourselves by what we're not. We compare ourselves to other people. We may consider them more holy or more moral than us. Or we do the opposite. We maybe consider ourselves to be part of the more holy and moral people. We compare ourselves to those who are not like us. Maybe even Christians from less privileged denominational backgrounds. But the whole point is that you cannot define yourself by what you are not. You can only ever define yourself by what you are. What are you? You are a member of Christ by faith. Verse 19 suggests that the goal of the Christian life is that Christ is formed in you. If you are united to Christ by faith, if His perfect righteousness and holiness has been imputed, been credited to you, then you are going to live accordingly. And He empowers you to live in that way. So if you are a regular congregation member, your greatest desire will be for the true gospel. If you are an office bearer, that will be your greatest desire for yourself. And your greatest desire for the congregation will be to see Christ being formed in them, to see people grow in the gospel. So in the end, the only thing that matters is where do you stand in relation to the gospel itself? Not what do you think about the pastor? Or what do you think about these men? Or what do you think about church life or Bible study? But where do you stand in relation to the gospel? Are you hearing the gospel? Are you submitting to it? Apart from the gospel, you have nothing and you are nothing. But when you receive the gospel in faith, you receive Christ. Then Christ is formed in you. Then you are united in true faith with Him and with those around you. Then life makes sense. This is the true gospel. Let no man preach another. Amen.